1: and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's episode is the third of seven events for distant friends and intimate enemies, the U.S. and Russia, the Fall 2020 Speaker Series at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. If you want to see the entire schedule, go to Reese's webpage at www.ucis.pit.edu slash CREES, that's C-R-E-E-S. Before we get to the show, I want to say a bit about the purpose of this series. Distant Friends and Intimate Enemies was inspired by a letter Walt Whitman wrote in 1881 to his Russian translator of his poetry collection, Leaves of Grass. Whitman wrote that, While the United States and Russia were so distant, so unlike at first glance, they nevertheless so resemble each other in their historic and divine mission. Now, Whitman's words would astonish many Americans and Russians today, since the living memory of relations between the two nations is one of conflict and animosity, rather than concord and similitude. So distant friends and intimate enemies seeks to re-examine U.S.-Russian relations in the context of concurrent historical developments from their beginnings in the early 19th century. The goal is to provide a set of alternative narratives to the tendency to only view U.S.-Russia relations through a Cold War lens. Hopefully, these discussions will allow audience to become more historically cognizant of the commonalities just as much as the differences between the two nations. Russian colonization stretched all the way to Alaska, the empire's only overseas colony. Russian America was not just a trading conduit to the Americas, Russian settlers instituted colonial administration over the indigenous population. But in 1867, the Russian government sold its Alaskan possession to the United States, which in turn established its own colonial rule. So I turned to Bathsheba Demuth and Ilya, Ilya Vinkovetsky to discuss the history of Alaska, Russian and American settlement and rule, and the transformation of its indigenous people. Bathsheba Demuth is an assistant professor of history and environment and society at Brown University where she specializes in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic. She is the author of the multi-prize winning book, Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait, published by W.W. Norton. Ilya Vinkovetsky is an associate professor in the history department at Simon Fraser University. He's the author of Russian America, an Overseas Colony of a Continental Empire published by Oxford University Press. Here's Besheva Demuth and Ilya Vinkovetsky. Now, both of you study the region of Alaska and uh, the, the Bering Strait and the region of both coasts of, of Russia or Chukotka, into Alaska from very different perspectives. So I'd like to start by just having you talk a bit about what got you interested uh, in the region and the approach that you take. Uh, Let's start with you, Besheva.
2: Sure. Thank you, Sean. Um, So I study uh, both the Russian and American sides of the Bering Strait, or that was the topic of my first book, and I became interested in that part of the world um, because I moved to might think of as the eastern edge of Beringia when I was a teenager, when I was 18, um, and spent some years training sled dogs um, on what was just outside the margin of the Russian Empire um, in the the 18th and 19th centuries. And it was there, actually, that I first started thinking about Russian history, because I was living in a a majority indigenous community. It was a a Gwich'in village named Old Crow, um, and... Their, their experience with Western trade goods started with material that were traded out of Chukotka and across Alaska, up the Yukon River and its tributaries. So I, that was actually my first exposure to Russian history, um, was, was from its kind of footprint on the North American continent. Um, and I ended up coming back to it some years later to, to do a PhD with an eye always to kind of thinking about these connections between uh,
3: Russia and n- the North American Arctic.
1: Uh, and Ilya, how about you?
3: Hello. Yes. Uh, well, I have to say one thing that happened uh, with me is that I was. Uh, I think uh, Babsieva was originally homeschooled, right? Before you went to, uh, before you went to uh, uh, Alaska, you in the, the Lower Forty Eight. Whereas I, I also grew up in the Lower Forty Eight, and part of and I was I would say overschooled. I went from Soviet school to. Uh, like 10 different schools in 10 years at one point. And um, I, at one point in high school, I lived in Texas and we went several times with my family to Mexico, crossing the border. And every time I went there, I was wondering, wow, this is such a big difference, going to Mexico from the United States. Perhaps I exaggerated some of the differences in the border towns, but nonetheless, and later because I was uh, not doing well in, in Spanish, my family actually sent me to Guadalajara for, for a summer in, in Mexico. So ironically, I think it was through studying, uh, and I, when I first started studying history, uh, seriously, at, uh, in, in, as an undergraduate at Wesleyan University, I was in American history, and I came to doing Russian America through American history and wondering, looking at things like borderlands history and Western US history, and asking myself, where are the Russians? What happened to them? How did they, Treat the natives of Alaska. How was Russian colonialism different or similar to the settler colonialism of other countries, such as uh, England and France and Spain, who participated in uh, the exploitation of the New World? So that's how I got into it originally. And when I first started doing the research in more depth in uh, in Alaska, I was focused more more or less on how the Russians were treating the natives of the region. Uh, But I realized that there were so, well, there were such gaps in scholarships that I had to fill them in. And eventually what became my book, uh, only the second part of that was really my original dissertation, which is dealt, dealt primarily with more or less what the Russians were trying to do and what they did with the native populations.
1: Now even though this is this event is framed around a US Russia relation um of course there are indigenous people to this region and they play a very important role then and today so who were the indigenous people who had, who inhabit this region uh Besheba
2: um so the the folks in the region that uh that I work on so basically north of St Lawrence Island um, and in on the Chukchi Peninsula and on the Seward Peninsula and, and north in Alaska, on the Russian side primarily uh, Chukchi and uh, Yupik, and on the Alaska side Anupiak and Yupik. So there's there's actually um, family relationships and lots of cultural lines that go back and forth. Um, and that's only a very small piece of the indigenous cultural diversity of Alaska as a whole, since it's a, a massive territory. So I'm not uh, in this book talking about all of the people who speak uh, Dene languages and Tlingit, um, which some of whom show up in Ilya's work.
3: Well, there's a wide variety and very different cultures throughout Alaska, of course. And the uh, first ones that were encountered by the Russians, were the Aleut uh, people of the Aleutian Islands, and then Kodiak was very heavily uh, invaded by the Russians. And then you have the Tlingit territories where, uh, the Russians also established later in what is today around Sitka. So, and there is, of course, the interior of Alaska. So there's great varieties. Um, and it's very hard to, to talk about them all one in one go. So let's just leave it at that. Great varieties.
1: Then, what is the relationship between? Because, uh, about you you deal with this uh, somewhat in your book, and that is the relationship the, between the peoples themselves before before you know foreigners come into the area. Can you t- bit talk about the culture, uh, their their social structure, and how they relate to each other?
2: Sure. And this will be uh, generalizing, obviously, because it's a it's a detailed and complicated part of the world in terms of the politics between people. Um, I think one thing that when I'm talking to audiences about this part of the world, if you've grown up after the Cold War, there's kind of an assumption that the border between the United States and Russia is a a fixture of human life, where in fact, it's actually quite a new thing in human experience. And that part of things, Um, the, the Bering Strait is about 50 miles across. And in the winter, that 50 miles is covered by sea ice. So you can actually walk from one side to the other. And that meant that there was an enormous amount of, of trade and intermarriage um, and also political dispute. So, you know, you can talk to folks on the Alaskan side now in Inupiaq communities who can still remember and talk about the, the way Chukchi would come across in skin boats um, in the springtime and, and take slaves um, or capture other kinds of things. And there was a lot of very um, carefully mediated trade relationships prior to the introduction of Russian goods that was moving things like obsidian um, and reindeer hides um, sort of across the strait Um, and the islands in the middle, actually, what are now called the Diomede Islands, were kind of key places of transfer between things that were more readily available on the Russian side, like reindeer skins uh, from domesticated reindeer that were white, that were very valuable in Alaska, where there were no domesticated reindeer, and obsidian, which was more readily available. Um, on the American side, or what is now the American side, uh, moving into Russia.
1: Yeah, Ilya, do you have anything, too, that you'd like to add about the relations between the indigenous people in the, in the region?
3: Yes, uh, to the point of the connection that Bathsheba was talking about, uh, the Russians considered the Aleuts, for example, who inhabit this long sieve of islands that stretches from almost the coast of Kamchatka all the way across to Alaska, uh, as uh, People that are related to Asia, uh, because they saw some many commonalities between those people and the people they encountered in Kamchatka and other parts of Siberia. So they were coming to to the colonization of the continent literally from the other side, uh, uh, from the going from the west to the east, right, as opposed to the other way from the other concourse. And um, so, also on Kodiak Island, they viewed they saw the connection between. Those people and the people of the Russian Far East and um, there, and it's only really when they got to Tlingit territories that they saw these are the real Indians, uh, as they called them, who were whom they knew from the literature of America and Britain and France. So uh, to them, there is a, some there was some continuity going that way, and so but but uh, in terms of the. So which tells you, I think, on one hand, of course, I'm talking about the Russians and their relations to the natives, not the natives themselves, but it also shows you how different these natives were for the Russians to have those perceptions, which I think is an important element here.
1: Now... The, the indigenous people who lived there were really reliant on the environment and nature for their livelihood. And what drew Russian and American interests as as well as others to the region was, of course, its natural resources, um, mostly uh, beginning in the form of whaling. I did not know, for example, that. Uh, much of the light of the East Coast of the United States in the early to mid 19th century was powered by whale oil. So this was a major commodity before the refinement of kerosene. Uh, and of course we have the fur trade, et cetera. So um, to ask a question of about the role of nature and its importance, the resources importance to the region, I want to uh, uh, ask something that, that is in Vesheva's book and that is, what is a whale? <laughs> I just love that. What is a whale?
2: So as a little bit of background, when I started this project, I didn't think that I was going to be writing about whaling at all. It was not on on my horizon and certainly not the kind of Moby Dick style tall ship, 19th century whaling that actually ends up being in the first two chapters. Um, And it became clear to me from my sources, both in Russia and in the United States and in oral history accounts that the... um, of sustained contact with people who are not originally from the the bering strait region Um, when you get that far north so i am i am actually north of where the russian empire had much impact at all in a direct sense um started with these commercial whalers and in the process of writing this, realized that the way in which a whale was understood by these seamen, many of whom left from you know the port of Providence, which is right down the road from me now, and made their way all the way around South America and up north of Hawaii, that their understanding of what a bowhead whale was as a kind of being was very much conditioned by the fact that they saw it as a source of commodities. And that the, the reason that they were there was to kill as many of these animals as possible to feed this appetite for, for whale oil on the East Coast, which is very different than the understanding of whales that was and continues to be present in the Bering Strait for um, Inupiaq and Yupik and Chukchi hunters, for whom whales, of course, were a critical source of what we would now call natural resources, although that is not the language that, uh, that would be used either in the past or in the present, in those communities, um, but you know, because they're incredibly fat animals, they provided light and heat. Um, they provided food. Their rib cages provide the you know spans that people lived under in, in these landscapes that have very few trees but they were also understood as social beings um, and moral actors that were participant in human society. And this, again, is a thing that I shouldn't even use the past tense, right? These are social animals and they are social beings within within communities along the Bering Strait today. So kind of as people meet around the action of whale hunting, which on the one hand looks like the same sort of activity. So you have to go out to sea, the seas are very dangerous. The whales themselves are huge. They weigh 100 tons. Um, they can be challenging opponents if you're trying to kill them. Um, actually ends up motivated from a very different understanding of what the animals even are um, and how they should operate within society.
1: And Ilya, what about the, how did the Russians, what drew them to the region in terms of Russian, uh, I mean, in terms of natural resources and, and and what were they interested in, in terms of their colonization?
3: I think the main interest uh, for the longest time, the longest stretch of what we call Russian America was in uh, sea otters and fur seals and marine uh, furs which were sold by the Russians in Russia but also primarily in China and in Europe and participated sometimes through intermediaries in world trade. Uh, And I think that's a, a very important part of it. And what's interesting about that is that if you look at Siberianized Russians who had conquered much of Siberia uh, and also the Siberian natives whom they brought with them on these daring, um, ex, uh, basically voyages to the Aleutian Islands and then later to, to the continent. Um, they, the, neither the Russians nor these Siberians really had much experience in the marine, um, in the exploitation of, mari- of these marine animals the way the Aleuts and, uh, and the Aleutic of Kodiak Island, for example, did. So for that reason, uh, they depended on and exploited the natives of the region to be the primary hunters uh, of those things. And, and that had a great deal of impact of, on how Russian colonialism went, I think. So uh, I think it's important as, for example, Ryan Jones does in his book, to emphasize the role of the uh, these Native Alaskans in the Russian enterprise uh, throughout its existence. The Russians were a very small minority in so-called Russian America.
1: And so, when 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 the Russians claim this region, then what status? If the if the the indigenous population is so important to the colonial project, uh, what what status do they hold vis-a-vis the Russians?
3: Oh, well, that's a great question. And it's a complicated question. There were different groups uh, that were involved and they were uh, involved in the Russian project in different ways. Some of them were, and and the natives of Alaska, from the point of view of the Russian American company, which ran the, the place from was it was analogous to companies such as Hudson Bay Company, for example, in in Canada, uh, uh, and we exploited the local resources. Uh, they were uh, Classified as dependent natives, that is dependent on the Russians, and independent natives, um, and those who were, who were dependent played a very important role in terms of um, providing for the existence of Russian colonial structures. Uh, their status was it depended, I think, a lot. It's it's uh, sometimes people uh, generalize about the so-called Creole or Creoles of Russian America. But the uh, reality is, they were not really a certain a different social class because much depended, as it did elsewhere in the Russian Empire, on who exactly your father was in this very patriarchal uh, kind of structure that they had uh, in the Russian Empire. And so, uh, you know, so if you were, uh, and t- because there were so few women, Russian women and uh, native Siberian women who came over, uh, the there was a, a growing uh, mixed population between. Uh, people from Eurasia and people from the region uh, living together and producing children. Uh, and that population grew and became much larger towards the end of the Russian America uh, than the Russians, who ended up, by the way, when Alaska was sold, uh, the Russians on the, on the main uh, went back to Russia. But the local peoples, some of whom had more identified more with the Russian community, became... Uh, you know, identified themselves as the Russians, but stayed in Alaska, and some some of them moved down to California and other places. So uh, I think there it's very difficult to generalize all about all those people, but they played a very important role, especially these mixed uh, uh, people, as they did in Siberia, uh, played a very important intermediary role between the native population and uh, the native environment, even, and the Russian empire and the kind of free market, not free market, but the market forces that were brought in by Russian colonialism into the region
1: Mhm and Beth, what in in your research, you have you notes these encounters between, say, even whalers or other people who are coming to the region from the United States and other parts of the world. How did they regard and understand the native populations
2: i think for for some whalers um in the in the nineteenth century arriving. You know they had ideas that were really schooled on the east coast of the United States, so coming with assumptions about what an what an, an Indian would have been the term they used. Um, although because the the whale ships themselves were actually quite um, quite diverse in terms of where people came from, many sailors were. You know, formerly enslaved people who had made it north and used the slave or the whaling ships as a way to really get away from slavery. Many of the whalers were actually, you know, native Narragansett or Wampanoag people who sort of made a living through these long whaling voyages. There's really different kinds of views, um, and even amongst the the people I have the most access to through the historical record, who are the the log keepers and the whaling captains, the the couple of people on the ships who are literate, there understanding of native people often starts with sort of a stereotypical european understanding of social hierarchy and a racialized social hierarchy but then they're often dependent on the indigenous communities particularly if their ships wreck and they're all very aware that the people that are living along the strait the Yupik, nupiak and chukchi have the capacity to survive the winters that if their ships go aground they don't so the the kind of ability to maintain the idea of racial superiority is consistently challenged even if it you know reemerges it's in a sort of state of flux often
1: um now one of the things that is is this region plays and we've spoken about the, the resources as as potential exploitable commodities um and and it really does connect this region that you know, on the surface might seem remote, but actually to a, a farther, a global economy to some, in many respects, at least to the Eurasian continent and to the North American continent. So what role did Alaska in the region uh, play in, inter, in intercontinental or international trade in the 19th century and into the 20th?
3: Okay. Well, I think there's a lot of, I, I think Batseba can speak to a lot to the Constant uh, exchanges on, across the Bering Strait that happened way even before that time and continued throughout that connected the world. But uh, uh, but I would say that th- through the the dominant way that the Russians got there was of course through the Aleutian Islands and then onto uh, the southern coast along the islands of Alaska in the south. In the south. Um, and um, the main resource there was uh, the, the marine animals, not the whales, but the sea otters and the fur seals, and uh, especially the sea otters, uh, their fur became an, a sensation, in, particularly in China, and uh, became uh, an object of the so-called, uh, you know, the soft gold rush, as as, as sometimes referred to, uh, the fur rush, uh, which involved Americans uh, and the British as well as the Russians. Uh, all these ships that came up there to trade with the Russians. Uh, and which extended far beyond that region and involved primarily Aleutian hunters and Aleutic hunters under uh, Russian control. So uh, and that trade uh, was very important for the Russian uh, Eurasian trade in places like Kyahta in Siberia, uh, the direct trade between them, but also the, the trade through the intermediaries uh, of the Americans, uh, especially in uh, um, in canton the uh, the the southern china trade so um and of course in other regions as well but but primarily this this drove uh this um, the value of the sea otter was what drove the Russians into the region and it also shaped the way that the labor systems that they de- were developed uh in uh Russian America to where uh, the you have this organized flotillas of kayaks. And kayaks, of course, were very much, uh, this is a technology that was developed in the region and kayaks came from from Alaska. Uh, but um, then you have this organization of those flotillas into uh, basically uh, uh, something that they were not before, which is that they went on these long missions and were sometimes given to, for example, American skippers who took them down the California coast and elsewhere to, uh, really, uh, to really hunt sea otters everywhere and to get all these furs as much as possible, which, uh, you know, had a lot of consequences for the region later on.
2: It's interesting to hear Ilya talk about a part of Alaska that is, you know, it's, it's sufficiently to the south of where my work is, that the dynamics actually look really interesting, partly because there were not sea otters. So the, the kind of Russian desire to set up um, shop kind of in the Seward Peninsula and points north was relatively limited because they considered the furs to not be nearly as valuable as what was on the Aleutians um, and in southern parts. So they had relatively little presence um, directly in this part of Alaska in the 19th century, but the Russians did maintain a trading post um, kind of on the western edge, uh, well, depending on which way you look at it, um, (laughs) the side toward Moscow of Chukotka along the, the Kolyma River Valley, um, which before the Americans became a regular presence in uh, in whale ships and started to kind of supplant the trade, they were actually buying furs that originated in Alaska and crossed the Bering Strait and made their way over to the Kolyma, were traded for you know knives and beads and other kinds of metal or manufactured goods that made their way you know over the course of a year or eighteen months all the way back over to Alaska and kind of repeated the process. So the Russian empire ends up actually being quite concerned and spends a lot of time writing memos about the, the impact of American whaling because it cuts off the fox fur and beaver and other kinds of species that had been making its way out of Alaska kind of indirectly through a series of indigenous uh, middlemen traders who were uh, kind of conducting this trade.
1: Uh, Can can you speak a bit uh, more? Can you speak more about uh, also the trading networks with the American side? Because one of the things I found fascinating that what you talk about is how the natural resources of Alaska get incorporated first into commodities and then into industrialization, right? It becomes a, it becomes incorporated into that, that modernization system. So uh, can you speak more about that relationship?
2: Yeah, I didn't, when I started writing this book, think I would spend so much time uh, researching what uses fat can be put to, and particularly fat that starts as a whale or a walrus uh, somewhere in the Arctic or subarctic, but it turns out that particularly before the development of petroleum products in the United States, so prior to, you know, 15 or 1859 or so, um, Whale oil and sometimes walrus oil were used as lubricants for all sorts of industrial processes. So if you think about the kind of early industrial revolution in the United States, even if it wasn't fueled by whale oil in the sense that they weren't burning it, they were using it you know, to make sure that those gears could run well. Um, it's also used to treat wool. Um, there's various ways in which wool preparation requires a lot of fats. It's used as an insecticide. It's used in soaps. Um, It really kind of what a whale was can distribute its way into all sorts of processes. Um, And by the early 20th century, whale and walrus blubber is actually used to manufacture nitroglycerin. So it becomes part of war efforts. Um, Walrus skins, it turns out, are really good at polishing metal. So some of the bullets used in the First World War are smoothed down to the the point they can go through the bore of a rifle um, by rubbing them up against walrus hides. Which, again, is not a thing that I expected um, when I started this book to be thinking about. Um, but the, the ways in which these animals sort of disperse through the through trade and through kind of ways in which humans put them to use is pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was I, I found that a really interesting kind of mapping of of how these get incorporated into industrial economies. Um, where did Alaska fit? And the, and the wider region fit into the a Russian empire, Ilya?
3: Well, uh, it was uh, the, I think it was very, uh, you know, the, all of Russian empire, Russian empire was a very complicated uh, empire, multi-ethnic, multicultural, um, all, every region is different, as I found out, just traveling around Russia, even without going overseas. However, what is interesting about the only, overseas colony of alaska uh in the russian empire um the only overseas colony of a very vast uh, uh, otherwise territory that's on the continent is that uh it was um othered from the beginning in some ways by by in by the russians by because they called it russiski colony v Amerike or russian colonies in america so first of all you have the word colonies right in the in the description and second of all uh, which means basically settlements right? not so much colonialism but the Russian colonies in America in America so it's uh, not in Eurasia, not in the not so connected to the rest of Russia uh, perhaps in some ways. Uh, so it was very far from other places and what's interesting is that in terms of structure, governmental structure, uh, it was run by a company, a uh, Russian-American company, россииско Amerikanska компания, which was, um, uh, in some ways, uh, it was at the same time uh, something that derived from the Siberian merchant com- companies of Siberia that were there before, uh, exploiting North Pacific. But also, when the Commerce College was creating it, they looked at the uh, exploitation colonies, colonial co- co- companies of based in Western Europe, such as Hudson's Bay Company, which I sometimes compare to uh, look at Hudson's Bay Company and Russian American Company. I say one is more like British Petroleum, and the other one is more like Rosneft or Gazprom. So they are in a similar or the same kind of industry, but have very different methodologies and, of course, very different business climates and political climates in their metropole cities where, where they are, where they have capital waters, uh, in London and St. Petersburg, as uh, the Russian Empire did after 1801. So um, so the Russian, Russian America, in that sense, was uh, different uh, as, a, as a kind of a colonial space uh, that was very different from much of the Siberia, for sure, and uh, in some ways had something more in common with what um, Central Asia would become later on. Uh, so if you look at some of the Uh, Turkestan invasions um, that happened after 1860, 1870, but that was more of a a latter period of the Russian colonialism. In other words, I think what's interesting about Alaska is that it doesn't fit a lot of the ways that Siberia was conquered because of the different labor structure and because of the way the Russian American company, for example, was uh, under the finance ministry. Uh, in the structure from the 1810s in the structure of the Russian uh, empire. So the idea was that this company was supposed to make money, uh, supposed to bring its shareholders. And there were shareholders who had shares in the Russian American company uh, and uh, was deliberately set up to be kind of an exploitation colony that was a hybrid of Russian companies from before and also more western european co- com- companies that were specifically geared to exploiting the new world and other parts of the world
1: and that's uh, uh what, what can you say to it's how it's imagined not just in imperial russia because you also deal with the soviet period H- how is it imagined it, it- through your research what you notice how they mad the it was a sorry i'm getting sub <laughs> stumbling all over the place um it happens uh how is alaska imagined in the russian empire but also into the soviet period
2: so if i pick up sort of after where Ilya's book leaves off because he's talking about the the russian empire when it it sort of owned piece of alaska at least on european maps um, and in that sense of sovereignty and think about it after 1867 um, when it's sold to the united states at least in my sources, Alaska shows up uh, primarily through a lens of regret, particularly after the gold rush, when there's a sense that, you know, shoot, we sold this thing for $7 million and look what they're pulling out of the ground. Um, And as a source of threat, uh, particularly because of the presence of so many maritime Americans who, you know, landed in Alaska part of the time, but also were very happy to go trade um, and bring disease and do other sorts of activities in what was Russian territory. So the, the kind of sense that the United States was pushing in or um, perhaps not keeping to its own borders shows up a lot in the, the kind of 19th century and up until the beginning of the Soviet period. And then after the Soviet Union takes control of the Chukchi Peninsula, at least on paper in the um, 1920s, There's a period when there's actually relatively easy back and forth, particularly for Native folks between the United States and Russia, there's a pretty uh, smooth process of applying for papers and people went back pretty regularly, which all stops after uh, 1948. So the the Berlin airdrop uh, more or less ends the, the easy commerce back and forth, which for many families is an incredibly disruptive and traumatic moment because, you know, people had had parents, they had close relatives um, on one side of the strait or other, and suddenly it's mostly closed. And I think in the Soviet period, and actually in the American period, once the Cold War is really kind of in full force, you can see a similar sense that the Bering Strait is a place of threat and instability. There's concern in the early 1950s by the American FBI that, you know, perhaps nupiak people have too much loyalty to their families who might partly be in Russia or, or Yupik people. Um, they're considered perhaps not American enough to be fully trustworthy. There's similar concern on the part of um, the the Soviet security agencies that, you know, maybe people aren't sufficiently Soviet. Um, and also it's the site uh, before the development of intercontinental ballistic missiles of uh, nuclear weapons that could reach um the, the capitals of each country. So the Chukchi Peninsula is so far east in Russia that it's actually closer to Washington DC than it is to Moscow. Um, so if you don't have IBCM capacity, it's the place you put your nuclear arsenal. And of course, Alaska was the same. So it became very much a place of imminent threat. Um, and you can see that in in archives of both places. Uh, that's re-
1: that's really fascinating. That both both also in the nineteenth century from the Russian side in the Russian Empire, but you know throughout into the twentieth century, though uh, Alaska and the the region itself, the entire region from Chicota into Alaska, it 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 occupies this strange liminal space where it's inside but also at outside at the same time of of both, you know, states. Um, what about the for, from the American side, how did they imagine, where did Alaska fit into the American imagination into the 19th century? And I mean, you spoke already to the 20th of Sheba. How did Americans Americans imagine Alaska?
2: So when Alaska is first purchased, um, and it's a it's a deal that's negotiated by the Secretary of State Seward, there's actually a lot of derision by the American press for for buying what they call Seward's Icebox, um, and sort of this idea primarily that alaska was a bad purchase because it did not have enough natural resources um and that you know whaling and walrus hunting and some fur production were pretty much it so why you know why is this what the country is spending its money on you know 1867 is obviously a moment when the united states is also you know just over the civil war there's all sorts of politics around reconstruction that are in full swing and it's in the process of fighting um, colonial wars on the what we would call the frontier um, in the American West. So it's a it's a pretty tumultuous moment in American politics. And then you know Seward goes off and buys this chunk of frozen land that starts going away pretty quickly once gold is discovered um, first in the Klondike, which is in Canada, but then in Nome, which is in Alaska proper. But I think that the the gold rush is actually a pretty good model for the way that Alaska is often thought of in relationship to what Alaskans call the lower 48, the sort of the rest of the the continental American empire, which is it shows up politically when there is a resource that's of particular interest. And the rest of the time, it was often, you know, mostly out of sight, out of mind. And this leads to a really different pattern of colonization than you see, you know, for example, in the American West, where there is the forcible removal um, by the United States Army of indigenous people to be replaced by farmers. And for most of Alaskan space, that kind of agricultural settler colonialism is not a great option. It's certainly not the most attractive option if you're trying to attract um, settlers and immigrants to come into Alaska. So it it kind of has this uh, boom and bust cycle um, of, of resource interest and then kind of state pullback, um, up until it becomes a state in, uh, 1959.
1: And do, in, in Alaska, do Alaskans and both indigenous people, but also, you know, uh, Americans that have moved there, migrated there since the, since the American purchase, how did they understand themselves vis-a-vis what, uh, Daniel Imelvar calls the logo map? Do they see, I mean, cause it, it, cause the picture you're painting is like from the, from the mainland, quote unquote, Alaska is this kind of, I mean, it's, it's colony. I mean, it's seen, it's not really like, it doesn't seem like it's fully integrated into America. Uh, and, and the relationship is as a, as a place to extract. So how do the, the inhabitants there understand their place in, into in America?
2: That's a hard question to generalize. Um, Partly because I think there are some some real differences between how um, Indigenous folks who were not actually given much of a choice about whether or not they were going to be part of America uh, versus the immigrant population, many of whom were you know in, immigrants in the sense that they started off in you know Norway or. Ireland and then moved very deliberately and ended up in Alaska because of the gold rush or, or something like that. Um, so there are very different trajectories towards citizenship. Um, and those trajectories in the 20th century were very racially coded. I think if you, you know, walk around downtown Anchorage and talk to, you know, people who live there, many of them very much think of Alaska as part of the United States, but a piece of it that can maintain kind of this frontier, Ethos, right? The word frontier is used a lot in Alaska, kind of self-advertising um, in the, you know, tourist brochures. It's the last frontier. It's the the place where you still have the kind of low population density and wilderness and those sorts of things um, that kind of defy define American um, Americanness for some folks. And paradoxically, this comes with a sense that um, the federal government is not usually embraced by kind of that group of um, Alaskans. There's a lot of skepticism about government regulation, as there is across the American West. At the same time, Alaska, like many states in the American West, is incredibly dependent on the federal government and federal dollars uh, to run. So it's a very, it's a complicated relationship, um, and not always one that is straightforward in terms of self-identity but um i think partly because it has a massive military population it it is very much a place of um kind of american people think of it as america
1: Ilya, do you have anything to add about uh, alaska's imagined uh, place in an american empire imagination
3: uh i, I think about Siba said it very well but um uh, yes so so i think it's a uh, i think if you look at the right at the moment in 1867, when Alaska uh, was sold to the United States by the Russian empire. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that at that point, uh, there was a really good relationship, positive relationship between uh, Russia and um America. It was perhaps the, uh, it was uh, known as, in Russia, actually, as, a, as an era of glasnost, right, uh, ironically, in under Alexander II at that time. And uh, there was a, a feeling of that, that feeling was was borne out by the fact that both sides were, um, Ameri- um, Russians at least looked like they were on the side of the north, uh, the civil war uh, in the United States, and uh, the Crimean War was something that involved Britain and France but not America uh, and there was a, this mutual feeling of uh, you know a relative to the before and after of very warm relations at that time and that, uh, but uh, but uh, okay but for the uh, native population I think what ha- when the Russian America was sold uh, to the United States um, as it was uh, at the time uh, people had to adjust and basically find their way in a very different social system so people literally went from being classified as creoles or uh, or uh, natives in a, dependent natives in, in Russia to becoming um uh white americans uh mainstream americans or uh so natives in some ways and they and so many people who were uh, in the in in groups that were in between uh in the russian empire had to then find their New place, or were defined by themselves or others in a new way uh, that was very disrupting to many people.
1: Yeah, I know there's some work being done now on the the Creole population uh, in in Alaska around the the transfer of, of 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 ownership, which is always a weird <laughs> a weird way of putting it. Um, why did the why did Russia sell Alaska?
3: A fascinating question, I would say, in many ways, and it's very it's a conundrum. I get asked that quite a bit. Uh, uh, well, I think first of all, we have to realize this is not a financial decision. This is not uh, this is a decision that has much more to do with geopolitics. Um, and so, from by the way, from the American side, right, when Seward bought uh, Alaska. So the Secretary of State in a very politicized climate, under uh, an administration that was impeached, uh, Johnson was was a kind of the, the Donald Trump of his time in some ways. Uh, and so for that reason, that uh, whole purchase was very much politicized. And I have to say that in some ways, even though uh, many papers were calling it Seward's Folly, Seward's Icebox, others were, especially in California and the West Coast, were very, quite enthusiastic about the purchase itself, although they had mixed feelings about how, what, how it would play politically in Washington sometimes. Anyway, uh, the point, um, although it's easy to see why America Bought Alaska in the grand scheme of things. Seven point two million dollars is not much, uh, and uh, it's also interesting. I would like to note that when Seward bought it, right, his intention was to also get British Columbia, uh, Western Canada. So he had these dreams of being uh, like Jefferson with the Louisiana Purchase, how kind of going down in history as this great uh, purchaser and uh, of of land that would that would become part of the. Um, the um, manifest destiny of the United States was to become a continent wide uh, nation, and Canada didn't become part of that nation by, in some ways, accident in, in many ways. In any way, uh, uh, but when, why, why did Russians actually sell it? Uh, this was a decision that was made in St. Petersburg by elites in St. Petersburg who were not themselves connected to the Russian American company, which was kept in the dark about the decision. And uh, the decision was made primarily, but also with the involvement of the Navy, by the way, because the Russian Navy was very important in running the colony. And so the Russians realized from the Korean War when there was a secret treaty that kept Alaska out of the Korean War. Uh, Korean War happened in Siberia on the Siberian coast, as well as in Korea, but Alaska was kept out of it in British Columbia by a secret treaty, separate treaty. Uh, And so, uh, they knew that uh, if basically one or two British ships, if they were to come into Sitka, Alaska Harbor and point guns at the fort, so-called fort that was there, uh, it would mean the end of Russian America. There were less than a thousand Russians from Eurasia in all of that territory, all that vast territory that they claimed. Uh, and um, it was very vulnerable to, so but even though there was no imminent threat at that time, This is something that was very much on the mind of the Navy. And after Russia acquired uh, the maritime provinces, which included such places as Nakhotka and Vladivostok, that is, areas where a potential port could be built, from the point of view of naval bureaucrats sitting in St. Petersburg, as well as others, um, it made a lot more sense, given Russia's bankruptcy after the Crimean War and its geopolitical situation, to develop. Uh, a new port in the Russian Far East, in Eurasia, then to try to secure this very vulnerable area where they felt uh, very vulnerable. And they were getting all these reports from their ambassador in Washington about the imminent expansion and power of the United States to expand. Uh, They just felt that it would be easier to give this, essentially give this territory to the United States, which was then their ally, which would also spite the British Empire because it would put Canada under threat. And I think it's no accident then Then you see Alaska being sold in 1867 and the Canadian Confederation also being formed in 1867 as a British reaction to this Russian move. Uh, And, of course, the Canadian Confederation was being formed, and then you have uh, uh, the deal to build the railroad, the promise to the British Columbia that the railroad would be built and to try to win their sympathies of some of the people in British Columbia who would have at that time preferred to join the United States. So there's a very complicated dance there. But the reason is, I think, the ultimate reason is because it was, uh, although there were some people who in St. Petersburg, who saw the value, and even they they knew there was some gold, for example, in Alaska, but they didn't know how much. The Russian-American company had some reports. But they were really reluctant to exploit that because they knew what happened in the gold rush in California, uh, and they knew that there was a a danger if if actually a lot of gold was discovered and that news leaked out, which it would pretty rapidly, that Russian-America would be lost at that time, just as Mexico lost uh, California uh, around the time of the gold rush uh, earlier. So, uh, so they the, that sense of vulnerability I think was uh, a key factor in the actual decision that was made, and also the fact of that it was made in St. Petersburg by people who had studied the problem uh, as a kind of in a bureaucratic way, but really didn't have as much of a stake in Alaska and didn't care about it as some of the people in, say, the Russian American Company did who had a personal investment in it.
1: Beth? how did the incorporation of Alaska into the United States transform the environment and nature? What impact has it had? did it have at the time and then going forward?
2: I think the you know, in the in the far north, the immediate impact of the sale was actually pretty limited. Um, the United States, like the Russian Empire, didn't uh, extend sovereignty in kind of an obvious lived form north into the Seward Peninsula for quite a while. They started sending sort of survey ships to try to control particularly the alcohol and gun trade. There was a lot of concern basically coming from the U.S. military's experience um, in the Dakotas and out onto the the high plains that um, they were arming people who were going to potentially reject American rule. And so there was a, a real attempt to try to control the gun trade, which, as far as I can tell from the historical record, actually mostly amounted to you know, these annual visits of the revenue service coming up and saying, we have no control over the gun trade because they did not that far North actually have, um, you know, the capacity to really patrol the coastlines. And there were still many whalers and uh, traders who were operating and could sneak around it. And, um, and so that, that kind of lack of jurisdiction and immediate colonial control lasts up into the 1880s and 1890s, um, At that point, there's kind of a more concerted effort to have schools, um, missionaries become much more prevalent. In terms of of resource use, um, by the early 20th century, the United States, again, basically because of the experience on the Great Plains and the the rise of the conservation movement and preservation movements, start to regulate wildlife and uh, particularly what they call big game animals so the, the sorts of animals that teddy roosevelt was interested in killing um in alaska um, and that that is probably the first place where you see the state itself having a really kind of tangible and immediate impact on the way that people are conducting their lives with um other species um And that starts particularly around walrus. There's a lot of attempts to regulate the commercial hunting of walrus, which had decimated the population that ends up um, actually prohibiting indigenous villages from hunting as many walrus as they needed to for food. And so there's some years of tension as um, these rules are put in place and there's attempts to enforce them. Um, But I think that's, you know, the, the kind of regulatory state attempting to make inroads by the early 20th century um, around wildlife and then also around the gold rush, kind of immediately around Nome, which, you know, doesn't have a an impact in all of Alaska, obviously, but for that particular place where there's suddenly, you know, tens of thousands of people showing up and a need to try to uh, do policing in a different way, um, you know, create regimes to transfer uh, property from, you know, the state which imagined itself as owning all of Alaska to individuals, um, basically, cutting out the Inupiaq who lived there and understood the the, the location to be theirs. Um, that that's also kind of a place where you see um, the the impact of the state on the ways that people are relating to the world around them. You
1: know, in the last couple of years, uh, there's been rhetoric in the media about you know again this regret of Russia selling uh, Alaska. Uh, you know, desires to I don't know the kind of a a, a fear of trying to reclaim it i don't know how to put it but and and of course the arctic region as such is becoming a a, a contest uh between the united states and russia and other powers but really there's a lot of uh, anxiety about you know the arctic um so where does this region fit today in 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 russia and in the united states
2: um that's an interesting question i I certainly can't speak for how it's understood in Russia as a whole. Um, I can say, and, and I'm also not a, a sort of national security expert um, in, but my my understanding is the kind of ways in which the Arctic is understood and the future of the Arctic, particularly because both for the, uh, the Northwest Passage which would be going north of Canada and then also the Northeast Passage which would connect China um, and Korea and, you know, sort of Asian manufacturing regions with markets in Europe uh, without having to go through the Suez Canal, um, is that either it's going to sort of be a place where international trade is worked out at a new and sort of newly prolific scale, or it's going to be a place of conflict. Um, and there seem to be two pretty distinct camps depending on how you interpret the ways in which the United States and Russia and Canada and other Arctic nations sort of talk about their plans. Um, and I think a lot of it kind of for people who are living there on the ground in Alaska is very, it's very up in the air, right? Like it's a, it's a time of immense and very rapid ecological change. And um, coupled with that, the fact that there's suddenly this capacity to to ship goods from Asia to Europe um, in particular, which requires going through the Bering Strait leaves a lot of questions um, there's a lot of potential for new economic opportunities, particularly in places where they're often hard to come by, but then there's also concerns about what that means for the integrity of local communities that are suddenly dealing with influxes of outsiders, which is obviously something that Alaska and the Chukchi Peninsula in Russia have dealt with before um, and often were very difficult periods in history and hard to absorb, and the environmental impact of having shipping at that scale, um, both because ships are dirty and dump water and move species around, and also because they're um, particularly difficult for marine mammal populations to cohabit with.
1: Is is this also a region of potential militarization? This goes to a question that's being asked on the chat. Is, uh, you know, because there's been some middle. The, the question is recently there have been some military exercises in the Bering Strait region. So is this a potential place of militarization on both the Russian and American sides? Do you know? I don't know if you can answer that.
2: I mean, I can answer what what i know of it and i think it's a really good question like how do we as alaskans interpret this like is this a new theater or is it warming up in the way that it did after the second world war is a major theater with with substantial buildup um and you know my sense is that for russia being able to run shipping through the northern sea route in a way that is attractive and um orderly for you know this is going to be in large part the uh, sort of the Chinese market connecting to um, to Europe is really important um, and so having it be a site of conflict runs in you know sort of contradiction to that it's not not really great if you're sending your uh, container ships through an active war zone. Um, so I think there is kind of a a sense from what I've sort of read in the Russian press that, you know, you don't want to have it be a hot war. I do also think that particularly around the Bering Strait, going back to, you know, the 19th century with all of those whalers who are just showing up and doing what they want to um, on Russian territory, there's also a sense of needing to be able to maintain a border that is orderly and policed, um, and it actually matches the Russian Federation's understanding of its own sovereignty. Um, And so that means there's been considerable, you know, infrastructure development and military activity on the Russian side. And then, of course, that can be interpreted in the United States as requiring something similar. Um, So this kind of space of porousness and porous borders, um, I, I think, is of concern to both what I don't know, and I share this um, Vincent's sense of, of real question about this, is whether that just turns into having it be kind of a more, look something more like the Cold War, where there's much more military presence, but not actually any conflict in a direct sense, um, or if it's a place where um, there's going to be real issues.
1: Uh, Ilya, do you have anything to add uh, in terms of Alaska's place in the, even the Russian imagination today? Russian sense of uh, national identity.
3: Well, it's funny, Alaska sometimes shows up in the Russian popular imagination and in funny ways. Like for example, after the Crimean annexation by the Russian, by, by Russia, the Russian Federation recently, uh, of course, the, the, in, in, in Russian, the word Crimea is Krim. And a popular joke that was circulating was, what is Alaska? Uh, what do they call Alaska in the Kremlin? Ice cream. Uh, so that's a, a little bilingual joke there. <laughs> uh, so there are also jokes uh, from the Soviet era that go back to, there were as people who study, who follow uh, uh, Russian uh, uh, affairs. No, there were a lot of jokes about the people in the Far East uh, called the Chukchi. The, there were all these uh, Chukchi jokes, right? So one popular joke was uh, Chukchi is crying um, and, uh, and, and, and the people Somebody comes up to the Chukchi and asks, "Why are you crying?" "We have a bad czar," he says. "Why is the czar bad?" "Well, he sold Alaska, but he didn't sell Chukotka." So there was a kind of a sense at that point of, you know, people in a lot uh, this kind of envy of at least perceived envy of the of how. uh, it, it's better to be in the United States at that point, first of all, a lot of people. So anyway, so it plays the, the, this different role. It's certainly a sore spot for the Russians because they sold it. Uh, and there was an almost immediate regret about the sale uh, in the Russian press. Um, and there was a lot of, I think, up to 1917, the Russian empire and the, the Russian church uh, kept a lot of involvement in Alaska. And that was one of their Connections and they would they would um, commit. Uh, so what I think it's telling that at that point, after 1917, the way that Alaska missionaries uh, uh, connect, collected money for the Alaska mission in Russia was they would they would um, ask people to donate uh, money to keep the souls of these uh, Russian Orthodox uh, uh, creoles and natives uh, uh, pure and you know. We uh, have them part of the true faith, right? as opposed to one of the other denominations, uh, because the, uh, the, at that point all these uh, rival missionaries were coming in—Protestant, uh, Catholic missionaries were coming into Alaska, uh, into Native communities, in uh, all, uh, vying for that for the people's loyalty. Right. So it's not just about America versus Russia, but also this. Uh, uh, religious identity that was very important and still remains important today in terms of uh, ethnic politics in Alaska and also ethnic identities in Alaska for many native peoples.
1: Yeah, this, this goes to a question that's actually in the chat, which is a really important one, uh, and it's about missionary work in Alaska and how it impacted relations between uh you know colonizers and and the indigenous population and of course you know and the, the question is is there anything similar to say the spanish conquest of california so if you could both of you speak more towards the rival of missionaries and and efforts or how did they deal with the the indigenous population in terms of you know missionary work uh sheba can you speak a bit to this or
2: i can speak to it for american missionaries um because there, there actually were no Russian missionaries on uh, as far north as as I work. Um, so the American missionaries, because there were not Russian missionaries, were not actually trying to uh, work with people who were potentially already Orthodox or who had familiarity with the Orthodox Church for the most part. Um, you know, sometimes somebody had been far enough south that they had seen them, but they weren't usually practicing Christians. Um, so the missionaries arrive Many of them had been trained in the American West, so they're they're coming in with an understanding of, you know, in kind of American colonial terms of what Indigenous people were and what they needed to do to transform their lives in order to be both saved souls and citizens. Um, and for kind of the early Alaska period, the missionaries are funded by the federal government, so it's before the church and state divide becomes a big issue in this way. And so that there is kind of a pooled you know create citizens who are productive. there's a lot of emphasis on on making people into um, participants in the market economy in some sense and also make them into Christians uh, so that their souls will be saved. And from the you know the the record on this is actually um, really bountiful in the sense that both indigenous communities and um, missionary logs kind of can tell you visions of what happened. Um, and generally speaking, I would say that it very much depended on the individual missionary families, that there are communities where people came in and actually, you know, learned Anupiak, um, their children spoke Anupiak, they grew up eating walrus meat, they were pretty kind of well integrated in some sense, um, and there were places where missionary activity was really actively rejected. Um, some of this had to do with the, the behavior of those individual um, missions. Like, you know, they're human. Some of them were great humans and some of them weren't. Um, and it also had to do with the ways in which particular indigenous communities were dealing with um, the impacts of imported diseases um with kind of there's a rolling series of famines particularly in the 1880s in northwestern alaska um that i think in some cases had communities looking for um, ways to grapple with what it meant to lose so many people from your community um, and in other cases gave communities reason to very much reject what was coming in from the outside Um, and it's it's quite variable um, and and remains very present. Like I um, I'm from a little town in Iowa called Decorah, which sent quite a few missionaries to, um, a community on a barrier island on the Chukchi Sea called Shishmaref. Um, and some of those missionaries were clearly quite terrible because when I say where I'm from, people get a look. Um, and you know there had Decorah has not been actively sending a mission there for a while, but, um, it's very much stayed with the community.
1: And Ilya, what about the Orthodox Church's missionary activity when it was under Russian rule?
3: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And there's a lot of it in historiography, there's quite a bit um, uh, sometimes uh, division between the the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian American Company. Um, I think it's really telling, however, uh, that uh, okay, there was Russian missionaries officially uh, from 1794 on. Uh, and really increased in uh, the 19th century. Uh, and uh, before that, you had uh, individuals missionizing, so to speak, uh, uh, take, uh, proselytizing on their own. But, uh, but I think what's even more interesting is that uh, there, after the sale of Alaska, actually, there were native groups that um, uh, under American rule, for example, the Tlingit, uh, in, in mass converted to Russian Orthodoxy about 20 years after the sale of Alaska. Uh, And I think that speaks to the the reaction to America and the American missionaries that were coming into that area. Uh, And also the fact that after the Russian American company was gone and the Russian empire was gone, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church remained and the Orthodox priests in the local uh, areas could act more uh, for, uh, inside American politics as um, protectors and organizers of the ethnic community, uh, local community uh, um, in their interaction with Washington, right? So, uh, so I think uh, that's a very interesting shift that happens that it becomes kind of like in among the Tlingit, for example, uh, and uh, also, it re, it's reinforced among the Aleuts and the Kodiaks, where there are large, in some other areas of Alaska, where there are a lot of Orthodox Christians, and where uh, there was a, an investment of the Russian church to keep those churches going. But you have this indigenization of the church that goes on. So, especially after 1917, when the Russian Empire shut out completely. So, the Russian Orthodox Church today is a little bit, um, in some ways, post colonial, identified in some ways with the native. Uh, community, although in some ways it still maintains this sort of tie to, to Russia still uh, in a more sentimental uh, way. So it's a complicated answer what I, I'm giving you, but I would say if you look at Sergei Khan's work, for example, um, on Tlingit history uh, in a Memory Eternal that he writes about, it's fascinating to see that 20 years after, after some of the abuses committed by Americans in the territories controlled by the Tlingits in Southeast Alaska, you have this massive uh, shift of people who had resisted for decades Russian incursion into their culture and specifically resisted becoming Orthodox Christians, becoming Orthodox Christians in a kind of almost mass conversion. And, and later that becomes a pattern in some communities to uh, their, their relations to, let's say, America versus their own identity. So to be an Orthodox uh, native uh, in some ways is a, in, in North America, in some communities, is Orthodox with a small O as opposed to a big O. So in other words, it's not so much about religion and connection to Russia and the Orthodox Christian world as much as it is about native identity versus uh, American uh, Protestantism. Catholicism.
1: Well, um, before we leave things, uh, is there anything either of you would like to say that you didn't get a chance to, to say about uh, the discussion? Sheba, anything you'd like to conclude with?
2: Um, I think I would conclude there were some sort of forward-looking questions about U.S.-Russia relations and um, and I'm not a, a foreign relations specialist. Um, but I I would also say that when you're thinking about the Bering Strait going forward from here, probably the thing that is most on people's minds or or comes up most often when I'm talking to general audiences is the fact that the environment is changing so incredibly rapidly um, and in a way that is really eerie if you spend time up there regularly. Um, and... Uh, sort of to remind people that what stays in the Arctic or what starts in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. Um, so the the really dramatic changes around things like sea ice that we're seeing over the past five, 10, 15 years, um, are going to impact what our weather is like, no matter where we happen to live. Um, in addition to, of course, really changing the terms under which people can live when they're in Alaska and, um, and Siberia, um, so I, that's just usually my kind of PSA if it doesn't come up, um, but the the way that we are living here is changing the terms of life there in, in really dramatic fashion, and it's not going to be restricted to the Arctic for long.
3: It's interesting how this region comes up in discussions as a kind of a... Um, uh, a little bit uh, as, a, as a, I, I think the important point about Alaska in some ways, Alaska as a whole today, right, is that it is a, a, a lost colony for Russia uh, and a, a frontier for America, kind of an acquired colony. So because of that, it's always going to play this role in both Russian and American nationalism, no matter what will happen. Uh, so no matter if it's uh, Sarah Palin saying I can see Russia from my house or uh, somebody in Russia like Zhirinovsky using alaska as a as a prop it's go- always going to be used as a prop in some kind of a nationalist discourse uh, kind of faded in this way but it's uh, it's important i think to bring back the reality that there are these native people there that and other people and also the environment there that is uh, that that is really uh, uh, the reality there that is beyond this game of uh united states and russia and the discourse that develops sometimes humorous, sometimes serious, sometimes ominous. When it is used kind of as a mirror for people's anxieties and uh, and uh, um, hopes, uh, some in 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 different ways that you know the Arctic will save us or the Arctic will doom us, so or the or Alaska as a whole um, in this way. So I think I'm reminded by the of one thing that I remember when I uh, was interviewed once about this uh, bridge that was supposed to be built. <laughs> Uh, between Alaska and Chukotka, right? There were all these plans. uh, And I think it was uh, originally, I think I remember when I was a counselor at this this camp called the World Peace Camp in Maine, where people were talking about, we had a psychiatrist uh, or psychologist come and talk to us about how if we build this bridge or a tunnel between Chukotka and Alaska, and uh, and and it's feasible perhaps uh, that would bring these nations together, and those are all, I think, fantasies uh, and not very realistic. But uh, once in a while, these ideas come up of how you we, you can either use uh, the Bering Strait as a as a border, or but you can also use it as a as a kind of a bridge, and it's so important as a connection point, uh, whether it's a metaphoric bridge or a real. Not there's no real bridge, and I don't think there should be, a uh, metaphoric bridge or uh, something like a, a barrier between the two, right? So the barrier is something that human beings have put up, but it is uh, a sieve that can be passed, and of course uh, we can go on both sides of that barren strait in that way.
1: That was Bethsheva Demuth and Ilya Vinkovetsky. Bethsheva Demuth is an assistant professor of history and environment and society at Brown University where she specializes in the lands and seas of the Russian and North American Arctic. She's the author of the multi-prize winning book, Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait, published by W.W. W. Norton. Ilya Vinkovetsky is an associate professor in the history department at Simon Fraser University. He's the author of Russian America, an Overseas Colony of a Continental Empire, published by Oxford University Press. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, I want to thank all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. When it's springtime
0: in Alaska, it's 40 below. I mushed from Point Barrow through a blizzard of snow. Been out prospecting for two years or so. Pulled into Fairbanks, the city was a boom. So I took, took a, a little stroll, stroll to, to the, the Red Dog sealing. Yes, he took a little stroll to the Red Dog sealing. When I walked through the door, the music was clear The prettiest voice I had heard in two years The song she kept singing would make a man's blood run cold When When it's springtime in Alaska, it's forty below below. When it's springtime in Alaska, it's forty below it was red-headed Lil that was singing so sweet. I reached down and took the snow packs off of my feet. I reached for the gal that was singing the tune. We did the Eskimo hop all around the sea